Well, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read for us the whole chapter. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, then, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Amen. Well, we've seen um, from the last two weeks in chapter 2 that Paul has been primarily concerned about orderly worship. He's concerned about how the church should conduct itself when it comes together for the worship of God. And we saw that in verses 1 to 7, uh, Paul wants the church to be devoted to prayer and especially prayer that has a global concern. In that, we're called to pray for all people and also for those in authority over us. Now, beginning in verse 8, Paul continues to emphasize the role of prayer, but the focus now turns to instructions regarding both sexes, male and female. He gives instructions for both men and women how men ought to conduct themselves within the gathered body, and how women ought to conduct themselves within the gathered body. Now this section spans verses 8 to 15, but this morning we're just going to look at verses 8 to 10, and then we'll take, and then we'll take verses 11 to 15 in the following weeks, because this section is extremely controversial in our culture. And I don't want us to just skim over it. Skim over it. I, I want us to really wrestle with what is Paul saying and the implications that that has for us today. So this morning, verses 8 to 10, we're going to look at. Now, before we dig into verses 8 to 10, I want to give you a little uh, instruction on hermeneutics. Okay, That is, how do we approach the Bible and interpret it properly? Okay, 
So you're right now in the seminary classroom for a few minutes, okay? And the reason I'm doing this is because this passage in particular gives us some very uh, difficult interpretive challenges, okay? The Word of God is not spoken in a vacuum, all right? The Word of God has always been spoken in a specific context and culture. Every word from God has been spoken in a specific cultural context. And that leaves specific challenges when we attempt to interpret the Bible. Because when you come to the Bible, you have to ask, what is cultural and what actually is eternal truth that is a binding binding upon all of us? And I would suggest that there are three hermeneutical methods or three ways that are used today And I would suggest that one of them is not Christian or biblical at all. The other two are biblical, but I think one method is superior than the other. So one form of interpretation uh, would be what we would call, you could call it the rigid, rigid literalism, okay? Meaning, though the Bible conveys eternal truth through cultural expression, we must take it all for what it is, and not remotely decipher between the eternal truth and the cultural expression. Okay, in other words, these individuals, the people who interpret the Bible this way, would would raise the cultural expression to the same level as eternal truth. So for example, here in this passage, Paul tells us that men should lift holy hands in prayer. And the rigid literalist would say, This must always be done in prayer, regardless of whether this was a cultural practice at the time. And the same would be true in regards to what Paul says about the braiding of hair. The rigid literalists would say that there is no circumstances in which it is appropriate for women to braid their hair, because Paul has said very clearly right here in this passage that women shouldn't do that. And so some Christian traditions would approach the Bible this way. Now, they are our brothers and sisters because they believe the Bible to be the authoritative word of God. They are trying as best they can in the same way that we are to understand the scriptures and live according to it. Now, the other group would be, in my opinion, not even remotely Christian or biblical. And this group would argue that all the Bible is rooted in cultural expression, and therefore none of it is binding upon us. In other words, they downgrade the eternal truths of God's word to the level of its cultural expression. And really, this group undermines divine authority altogether. The Bible is merely a book of human wisdom that we ought to base our life on, but there's lots in there that we ought to disregard. Now, this group we would classify as liberal Christianity. The Bible is not authoritative, and nothing that Paul says here in regards to women, for example, is binding on Christians today. So, for example, A.T. Hansen, a liberal scholar, said this, Just as the first half of this chapter showed us the author at his best, so the second half seems to show him at his worst. Christians are under no obligation to accept Paul's teaching on women. Now this method, of course, is a complete undermining of the Christian faith. 
It's basically saying that there are no eternal truths that are binding upon the Christian upon Christians today. Really, it's basically saying that God has not spoken. Now, the third method is what most Orthodox evangelical reform Christians would believe. John Stott, for example, calls this method cultural transposition. Now, the idea is this. When we approach the Bible, we have to understand there are eternal truths that are conveyed or captured through cultural forms. So you could say scripture is a blend of substance and form. There are eternal truths that transcend culture, and then there is the transient cultural expression of that eternal truth. So for example, John Stott says we have to be able to discern in scripture between God's essential revelation and its cultural expression. So a really clear example of this would be John 13, where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Now, in the ancient world, washing, washing one's feet was reserved for servants. And because people wore sandals and the roads were dusty, you would enter someone's home and, and have your feet washed. This was a cultural practice. And what Jesus does through the washing of the disciples' feet is convey a theological truth through this cultural expression, which is... True greatness is found in going low and being the servant of all. So the truth that is universal is the call to servanthood. But servanthood will take on a different form depending on the culture you live in. So you could say there's a principle and that principle takes on a specific form within a specific culture. And part of the task of interpretation when we come to the Bible is to be able to differentiate between the two. And we don't always get it right. But I would suggest that it's actually far more obvious than we realize. And here in this passage, we have something similar going on. There are principles or truths that are applicable and binding for every culture, time, and period, but these truths have been expressed uniquely within a specific culture. And I hope to help us see that in this passage. So with all that being said, let's dig into the passage and wrestle with Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired instruction. Now the first group he addresses here in 1 Timothy 2 is that of men. And here we're told that when the church of Christ gathers together, there are things that men should do and there are things that men shouldn't do. Paul says in verse 8, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So there are two things that we as men ought to be doing and there are two things that we shouldn't be doing. Now, he also describes the where of when this should take place, and that is in every place. Now, most likely, this is in reference to all the churches. That is, whenever the church gathers, wherever it is, men should do this and not do this. Okay? So what should men do and what should they not do? Well, first, we're told that they should pray. Now, this doesn't mean that women shouldn't. Okay? Paul speaks about women praying in the life of the church in 1 Corinthians 11. He encourages it. 
But here, for whatever reason, Paul, in addressing men, tells them that Christian men should be men of prayer. That when the church gathers, men need to pray. They need to pray when they're alone, but they most definitely need to pray when they're with the gathered body of Christ. And so let me just say this. If you're a professing Christian man, and you don't ever pray amongst the people of God, I think you are directly neglecting a command in Scripture. I really do think that. I don't mean that you always have to pray, but if you're a man who professes faith in Jesus Christ, but refuses to pray, you're neglecting not just a command, but one of the greatest blessings of the Christian life. J.C. Ryle stated this, Faith is to the soul what life is to the body. Prayer is to faith what breath is to life. How a man can live and not breathe is past my comprehension, and how a man can believe and not pray is past my comprehension too. The church needs men who are devoted to prayer. It also needs women, but but here the emphasis is upon men, and therefore I'm emphasizing this. You know, when we think about what prayer is, I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul emphasizes the importance of men being devoted to prayer. Prayer is communion with God, but it's also an act of humility. Prayer demonstrates humility. It demonstrates weakness. It demonstrates need. Prayer is saying that I need the help and strength of God. Prayer is saying that I am dependent upon another. And we men, in general, have a tendency to feel like we're self-sufficient. We tend to believe that we're stronger than we actually are. And because of this, we can easily look for other solutions before we look to God in prayer. And therefore, we as men need to humble ourselves and express to God in prayer before the body of Christ our need for God's help. Because we're not self-sufficient. There's a reason why God said it is not good for man to be alone. I know that we're not self-sufficient because all of you married men dress way better than you did before when you were single. Now, not only does he tell men to pray, but specifically that men should pray lifting holy hands. What does it mean to have holy hands? Well, the point that Paul's making is that men should pray as men who have consecrated themselves unto the Lord. As Gerald Gray says, holiness was not a matter of external acts, but of internal disposition, so that holy hands really meant the hands of men whose hearts were pure in the sight of God. In other words, Paul's not simply calling us here to pray. He's calling us as men to pray before God as men of holiness. As men of purity. You see, the scriptures make clear that our prayers can be hindered for different reasons. One of the reasons, 1 Peter talks about, that that if a man does not live with his wife in an understanding way, his prayers can be hindered. But one of the reasons is also living in and treasuring sin. Psalm 66, 18-19, David says this, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart the Lord would not have listened. Did you catch that? 
If you're cherishing sin in your heart, the Lord will not listen. But truly, God has listened and he has attended to the voice of my prayer. So it's not enough to simply pray, men. As men, we need to ask ourselves, are we coming to prayer with holy, pure hearts? Now, Paul tells us that we should lift our hands in prayer. Does this mean that when we pray and we don't lift our hands, that we're somehow neglecting Paul's command? And this is where you have to think about the eternal truth revealed in a cultural form. Can men or women lift their hands when they pray? Absolutely. But are they required to every time they pray? The answer is no. What Paul describes here was the traditional Jewish custom when it came to prayer. Men were called to stand and lift their hands a posture demonstrating that they were praying. So Paul, as Gerald Bray says, was simply following established practice. He was not prescribing it as the only way that anyone could or should pray. And so the eternal truth is that as men, we need to pray and we need to be holy. But the lifting of our hands is the cultural expression by which that truth took form in that time. Now, that being said, I think we as Reformed Evangelical Christians, as Baptists, I think we need to think more about the role that our bodies play in worship. You see, we tend to think that our bodies have no significance when it comes to our worship of God. All that matters is the Spirit. But I don't think it's coincidence that throughout the Bible, you have the people of God kneeling, standing in worship, raising their hands in worship. In C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, where the demon Screwtape is training another demon Wormwood in trying to lead humans away from the truth, one of the things he talks about is, is how it's important to make believers think that the body has no impact on the soul. And so uh, Screwtape says this to Wormwood. At the very least, they, that is humans, Christians, can be persuaded that the bodily position makes no difference to their prayers. For they constantly forget what you must always remember, that they are animals and that whatever their bodies do affects their souls. It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds in reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Lewis is saying here through, through the, the, the demonic conversation that, that we humans tend to think that our bodies don't affect our souls. We think about this in regards to sexuality, right? Sexual, sexual practice, a sexual act, a sinful sexual act is a bodily act. Does it affect the soul? Absolutely. So why not... Why do we think that certain bodily positions don't affect the soul? We are creatures made in the image of God. We are both body and soul. And so it would make sense that our bodies actually impact our souls. And so though we're not required every time we pray to lift our hands, I would suggest that we need to think more about the role that our bodies play in worship and how it might actually affect 
our souls. Think about what kneeling in prayer might do in helping our souls be in a position of submission and humility before the Lord. I remember experiencing this two summers ago when I I went to a Reformed Anglican service in British Columbia where my cousin worships. And at several points in the service, we prayed prayers, but we were invited to kneel. They had prayer, they had uh, kneeling prayer benches, and, and the whole church together was invited to kneel. And it had a deep impact on me. It really did affect my worship and the disposition, the, the disposition of my heart towards God. And genuinely, I think it's something that we as Baptists need to think a little bit more about. So, Paul calls us men to pray and to lift up holy hands in prayer. But there are also two things he strongly condemns. And it's connected to his command to pray. He says to pray without anger or quarreling. Without anger or quarreling. Now this isn't the first time quarreling comes up in 1 Timothy. Paul has already alluded to the fact that these false teachers were producing quarreling. But here he says to us as men, when we come together as the people of God to worship God and to pray, it better be done without anger or quarreling. In general, though this isn't true of every man, but in general, we can say that men have a greater disposition towards anger and conflict. It doesn't mean that women don't, but in general, it's men who like to fight. A man's demeanor is more prone to fight. Now, I'm not saying there aren't women who also have that tendency. I know some. I'm not referring to anyone in my family like that, but, but in general... Men have greater demeanor towards anger anger and quarreling. Okay? And Paul's saying there is no place for this in the life of the church amongst men. No place. I mean, think about, think about the results of what prayer produces versus what anger and quarreling produce. Prayer has a unifying effect in the life of the church. Right? It brings us together. It unites our hearts around the things we lay before the Lord. I always feel this Wednesday night after we're done praying. I feel unified with the body of Christ. Anger and quarreling, however, divides and causes conflict in the life of the church. It does the very opposite of what prayer is supposed to do. Not only that, prayer is an act of humility. Whereas anger and quarreling usually are the result of pride. Now I know that there is such thing as righteous anger. I don't want to dismiss that. But there is far more warning in the scriptures about the dangers of anger. See, anger should not define you as a Christian. There may be seasons for anger, but it should not define you as a Christian. Quarreling should not define you as a Christian man. There is no anger. There is no anger in the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. That should define us. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
See, anger is often the evidence of a lack of self-control. See, these are the very things, the fruit of the Spirit are the very things that are contrary to anger and quarrel. And so, men of Royal York, let us strive by the Spirit of God to be holy men of prayer who forsake anger and quarrel. Now, it's at this point where Paul turns to the women. If Paul expressed how men ought to conduct themselves in relation to prayer, Paul now expresses how women ought to conduct themselves in regards to their adornment. Look at verse 9. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now there's a few things we need to observe here. First, the central focus of Paul's exhortation here is that he wants women to adorn themselves. Women to adorn themselves. For a woman to adorn herself is to enhance her beauty. Okay? So Paul's not condemning women for desiring to look beautiful and attractive. Okay? That is... That is an innate desire that God has given women. I am thankful that my wife likes to look good. Women are called to adorn themselves, to enhance their beauty. Paul's not condemning that. That's part of how God made women. There's no basis in this passage for women to neglect their appearance. This is not a call to look unattractive or to try and hide your beauty or look dull. That's not Paul's point at all. Also, He's not remotely promoting that women should be ashamed of their bodies. God has given both women and men their bodies, and he has given the body of both men and women a certain form and a certain shape. And God intended to have that form be pleasing to the eyes of both men and women. Like, God could have given us boxes for bodies, but he didn't do that. He gave men masculine bodies that would catch the attention of the female eye, and he gave women feminine bodies that would catch the attention of the male eye. That's God's design, and God does not want us to be ashamed of our bodies. He does not want us to despise our bodies. Now, that doesn't mean that we therefore flaunt our bodies, but God doesn't want us to be ashamed of our bodies. He wants us to respect and cherish our bodies. So when Paul says that women should adorn themselves, he's calling them to enhance their beauty, but the question is, how? How? How should they adorn themselves? How should they enhance their beauty? And if I were to summarize what Paul's articulating, it would be this. Christian women ought to adorn themselves with virtue and modesty. You can break down Paul's instruction to women into three parts. First, he tells them to adorn themselves with respectable apparel, modesty, and self-control. Now, the idea here, as Stodd explains, is women are to be discreet and modest in their dress and not to wear any garment which is deliberately suggestive or seductive. See, modesty is not about clothing, okay? Modesty is a disposition of the heart, but it manifests itself externally. 
See, a best way to describe a modest person is in some sense a humble person. Someone who intentionally doesn't try to draw attention to self. And that's really what Paul's getting at here. Secondly, Paul exhorts women with what not to adorn themselves with. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, does this mean that it's always wrong to braid your hair? Because some of you braid your hair. Does it mean that you should never wear jewelry as a woman? Does it mean that you can't ever have a little bit more of a more expensive dress than you usually buy? No, I don't think that's what this means. I think this is, again, the universal, eternal truth taking on a cultural form or expression. So the eternal truth is that Christian women should be modest in their appearance. And by the way, men need to be as well. And Paul tells us in the cultural context he was writing in what that doesn't look like, which was braided hair, jewelry, and costly attire. Why? Well, because in Ephesus, the great goddess Diana was worshipped. And there were hundreds of female prostitutes that were tied to this pagan worship and dressed that way. And so it was important for Christian women to present themselves publicly in such a way that did not resemble this pagan culture around them. And costly attire, fine jewelry, and braided hair captured that pagan culture. You see, braided hair in our culture isn't tied to prostitution. Wearing jewelry, though it can be immodest, isn't viewed in the way that it was in Paul's day. The point that Paul's making isn't that it's evil to have braided hair or to, have, or to wear jewelry. Remember, holiness, goodness, righteousness in the scriptures is never primarily about what you wear, eat, or drink. It's not the external. Rather, the point that he's making is as Christian women, does your appearance reflect the immoral, immodest culture around you, or does it reflect a virtuous, modest heart that is pleasing to God? That's the question. You see, a helpful way to think about this is, is how John Stott articulates this when he says, What Paul is emphasizing is that Christian women should adorn themselves with clothing, hairstyles, and jewelry, which in their culture are inexpensive, not extravagant, modest, not vain, and chaste, not suggestive. So let me try to illustrate this, okay? Um, let's say the Apostle Paul was living today in Canada, and he decided, decided to write an, a, an apostolic letter to the church in Saudi Arabia, okay? And let's say that in that letter he had a section in which he addressed women in the church in relation to modesty. And he said something like this, I want the women to adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. They should wear tank tops with width of at least three fingers and make sure their skirts are just above the knee. Now, how do you think the women in the church in Saudi Arabia would receive this letter? They would be utterly confused. They would probably be thinking, is Paul trying to get us killed? Why? 
Well, because Christian women in Saudi Arabia don't need to be told to wear skirts just above the knee because in Saudi Arabia, they're fully clothed from head to toe due to the Islamic cultural expectations of women. It wouldn't make sense for Paul to give such instructions to a culture like that. Whereas if Paul was writing to the church in Canada, it might make more sense to write something like that. Do you see? The culture affects the principle and how it's lived out. Also, notice that Paul doesn't actually tell us what a woman should wear. You see that? He tells us what a woman shouldn't wear. He doesn't tell us what a woman should wear. And that's because Paul knows that depending on the culture you're living in, modesty and immodesty may take on a specific cultural form. And the fundamental issue isn't about dress, but about the attitude of one's heart. As Bray says, what Paul was really interested in was not women's clothing, but their spiritual attitude. And that leads to the last thing he says. Paul returns to the positive and says that Christian women should also adorn themselves with good works. As he says in verse 10, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. If you profess godliness, that is, if you profess to be a Christian who worships the one true God, then there is a way to carry yourself and to live that is proper. You don't get to be the determiner for what's appropriate for you and how you present yourself to society. God determines that. And Paul says that you ought to spend your energy adorning yourself with good works. This is the focus that you as Christian women should strive for. See, Paul's not saying be indifferent to your physical appearance, but he is saying there's a hierarchy of importance. And in that hierarchy, modesty, virtue, good works are where a godly woman's energy should be put. It's not that physical beauty doesn't matter, but there are different kinds of beauty. There is both the physical and the moral. There is the beauty of the body, but more importantly, the beauty of character. You see, our culture tells women every day that you should devote all of your energy and effort to look as good as you can physically, and then to flaunt it. Because somehow, that's liberation for women. No, it's not. It's enslavement to men. But the call of God is for both men and women to become as beautiful as we can become morally. Jesus Christ died not so that we could be physically beautiful. He died so that we might be morally beautiful. He died so that we, both men and women, might be conformed into his image and likeness and he is the source of all beauty. This is why a woman can grow old and age, and yet there still be a radiance about her, because she has been a woman who has adorned herself with virtue and godliness. And though her physical body has declined, 
Her inner soul shines forth through her so that she reflects the beauty of Jesus. That's the kind of beauty that God desires for women who profess godliness. And so just as I called the men to be holy men of prayer who forsake anger and quarreling, to my sisters in the Lord, I want to exhort you, not because I don't think you already are, I want you to know, not not only as your pastor, but as your brother in the Lord, I commend you for how you carry yourselves here at Royal York Baptist Church. But I want to exhort you to adorn yourself with the beauty that God delights in, a beauty that is modest, self-controlled, and devoted to good works. Because this is the beauty that God delights in, and this is the beauty that Christ has died for. Let's pray. Father, we live in a society that basically tells us that we ought not to be told how we ought to present ourselves, how we ought to live, this expressive individualism, and it's so contrary to your word. And I pray that you would help us, both men and women, to conform our lives to your word, to not allow the messaging of our culture to shape us. I pray especially for my sisters here who live in a culture where every day they are being told to basically sell themselves. And I pray that they would know that you delight in the inner beauty of the soul and that that is what truly matters and that they would strive to honor you with their lives in the midst of this culture that we live in. And I pray that we as men with love and delight in women who truly are women of inner beauty. Help us, Lord, to be men of prayer. Help us to be holy men. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.